As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read with me, here we'll be in the book of James in chapter 1. I hear pages uh, turning already, but James chapter 1. And before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Our Lord, we know that we are like the grass. Uh, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Your word never fails or goes out of style. It stands. So now, Lord, would you help us by your spirit to hear these things, to believe these things. Would you accomplish your purpose in us through these words And we ask your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to focus this morning on just a few verses here, verses 9, 10, and 11 of this first chapter. But in order to get us there, I want to read the verses up up until them. So this is James chapter 1. I'll begin back in verse 1. James a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of God. Now, I want to back up very briefly here to just get a very wide-angle look at this. What we've just read is a couple of sentences from a big book that we call the Bible. It's the widest-angle lens I could go. And and while the Bible is one big, complete, and unified book in one sense, it's more fitting in some way to, to view the Bible as something closer to a library of books. It's not a fluid library, you know, books are not, you know, being checked out and coming and going and adjusting as time goes. This, this is a bound collection of 66 books, no more, no less, and each of those 66 books are written in different times by different authors for different circumstances, but they're all moving in essentially the same direction which is to teach us what is true about God and godliness. 
That's the goal of the scripture. And everything that we read in the Bible then fits within that framework of God and godliness, including the book of James where we are now. So we've called this uh, writing, James, uh, a book, and, and it's fine to do that. We can call it a book. It is that in some sense, but it's more technically to call what we've just read here a letter. That's the type of writing that it is. You can tell from the very beginning uh, as we've read through it. You might uh, sometimes hear something like this call, be called an epistle. If you heard that word, it's just a fancier word for letter. They mean essentially the same things. And most of the books in the New Testament are epistles. Most of the New Testament books are letters. And, and while each of these letters is teaching us in, in various ways about God and godliness, they sound different from one another because they are. They're moving in the same direction, but, but there are lots of different types of letters. So to help us understand them and get a grip on them, sometimes people group the letters into various categories. So sometimes they group them by writer. So you might hear uh, people discuss the Pauline letters, which are letters written by the Apostle Paul. Or sometimes the letters are, are grouped by their audience. So you might hear a description of letters of the pastoral letters, which are letters written to particular pastors, leaders in the churches. Timothy and Titus are some of those. Um, or uh, we sometimes hear them described as grouped by circumstance. So you might hear descriptions of occasional letters. And occasional letters don't mean that they pop up every once in a while only occasionally. They mean they were for a particular occasion. There was a particular issue at hand to be dealt with. So Galatians is a great example of this, that Paul was writing to the people at Galatia to address a particular issue of how uh, the matter of circumcision was to be dealt with amongst Christians. The epistle that we're in now fits into none of these categories, at least not easily. The author here is James. It's the only letter from James that we have in the scripture, so it's not Pauline or any other group. Uh, we also know that the audience was wide and unspecified. There's not a particular person or particular church he's writing to, so it's not a pastoral letter in that sense. And it's not an occasional letter either. There's not a clear reason why Paul or why James is writing this. It's a very broad letter. He's just writing in the midst of many, many trials of many kinds. So it's very open-ended. And the open-endedness of James's letter has led to lots of discussion among scholars about what this letter is actually about. What is James writing about here? Is there any particular theme or focus we could wrap it all around? The closest thing to a theme that I can discern here is in verse 22 of this first chapter that when James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, that he's talking about what it means to actually enact the word of Jesus, now that we're followers of Jesus, what does it mean that we'd actually follow him? But even that still sets it in a very wide-angle lens. We've already heard James talk about tons of issues. He's just jumping from one to another here at the beginning, from joy and trial, wisdom, uh, doubt, faith, riches. There's no subject, it seems, that's out of bounds for him, and that should be no surprise to us in some way, because if Jesus is really saving us, if Jesus really saves us, he saves all of who we are. Not just saves our soul, 
He saves us heart, soul, mind, and strength. That he means now to transform all of us so the Christian life then is going to intersect with every part of life. That's a big bundle of things to deal with. This is why it seems like James is all over the place. I know we can't address every issue all at once, nor nor should we, uh, but he has focuses as he goes through, and there seems to be a focus in these particular verses, 9, 10, 11, that we've just read. This small section might seem to be about money, but I don't think it is, at least not mainly. James has a lot to say about money, about wealth, Riches, or our practices and attitudes about those things. So we're not trying to dodge the money issue because it's an uncomfortable subject sometimes. We'll get to those things as we come to them. I can't wait. Uh, but here, these words are less about our purse than they are about our place. He's addressing here our position, our condition. If we look at verse 9 and and the beginning of 10, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Those are positions, exaltation and humiliation. Now, given that, that he's addressing our position, it's important for us to notice here that James is not just explaining these positions, he's calling for a particular response to these conditions from us. Did you catch what the response is supposed to be? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. We're supposed to boast in these things. Is that surprising to hear? I mean, I thought boasting was a bad thing, right? Something that, you know, the kid when I was little did that I didn't like, you know? Boasting often is a bad thing, not a good thing. It depends, then, what we mean by boasting. So let's unpack that a little bit. The scripture says lots of things about boasting. Uh, uh, One key section is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. If you don't know this verse already, mark it down to look at it later. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, which is that Jesus has saved us by grace through faith in him. Full stop. We are saved by grace through faith. And that would be enough to end the sentence. But then Paul, the writer there, goes on to add a little bit of extra thing. He says, and this isn't your doing. This isn't something you've done. Not one bit of works is involved in this. It's a gift so that no one may boast. In other words, every inch of a Christian's salvation is accomplished and secured by Jesus, not by you. Not one inch. Jesus does it all. You know, when we sing, Jesus paid it all, that's true. 
But it's not only that. It's not just he paid it off and then you have to kind of fill in the rest. He has accomplished and applied his own work as well. There is not one scrap that you have contributed to your own salvation. It's all Jesus' doing. There is nothing left then for us to boast or brag about when it comes to our salvation. And if we try to boast, it's all just empty words. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. In Romans, he talks about boasting, and in that section, he talks about it as a pattern of living. Boastfulness there is then lumped into a group of things that are called a debased mind. That, that they're bundled into this long list of evils together with slander and murder and gossip and hate and envy. Boastfulness is in with that. That's not something we want to do or to become. Even James himself will say later in his own letter in chapter 4, verse 16, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, of course, I think we know this already. There's, there's a kind of boasting that is indeed sin. It is wicked. And at the root of this sort of arrogant boastfulness, I think, is really comparison. That seems to be at the root of arrogant boastfulness, comparison. It's often accompanied by a sense of superiority. So, you got an A, I got an A+. plus. Your kid made the varsity team. My kid's a starter on the varsity team. These comparisons happen, and not always are they spoken. In fact, there's usually just an internal sense of this boastfulness, that in the heart or in the head, we might boast about how we're better or ahead of someone else because we volunteer more. Because we give more, because we go to church more, because we read our Bible more. Even the height of irony on these things is that sometimes we even boast about our lack of boastfulness. Does this sound familiar? This thought, or at least the sense of it, the feeling of like, that person is so full of himself. Boy, I'm so glad I'm not like that. I must be better. We boast about our boastfulness. This sort of boasting, of course, is nonsense. It's immature. Like most sin is immature nonsense. So if the scripture is so clearly pushing us against these sorts of things, obviously this is not the kind of boastfulness that James is calling for here. So what is it that James really wants for us in verse 9 where he says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The word boast here is fitting, but it can also trip us up because it carries with it certain connotations. Boasting here doesn't really have a comparison sense. There's not superiority. Some translations will say, let the lowly brother take pride in his exaltation. 
although that's also sometimes hard for us to wrap our minds around. There's a negative connotation for pride there. There's not an even excessive focus on the self here. What James means by boastfulness here, if I lost you, come back. What James means by boasting here is closer to the idea of saying something with deep satisfaction or to relish it. To relish it, not the pickle relish, the pleasure relish. That is, this is not saying I'm better or worse. It's not even really comparing at all. It's not saying I, I've done anything or made anything to get where I am. I'm just saying I'm really glad for it. That it is in some way glorious to me. And in, in this sense, there can be a good or holy boast. The prophet Jeremiah it talks about this just a couple of verses in chapter 9. You'll hear the difference between uh, a good and a not-so-good boast. Verse 23 in Jeremiah chapter 9, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He doesn't say wisdom or might or riches are bad. These are often good things, but the boast here is that I know the Lord, that I understand at least part of God. And this is not because I am smarter or better or a bigger studier. It's not a show-off. I'm a Christian and you're not. To boast that I know the Lord is to say it with deep satisfaction. I know God. To say it with relish, with a sort of glorious gladness. I know God. That is a good response. That is a good sort of boast. So now, if there are good kinds of boasts, what is it then that James tells us to boast in here? What are we to relish here? What he says might come as a surprise to us. Because he doesn't tell us to boast in God, although he's not saying don't boast in God either, but that's not specifically what he mentions here. What are we to boast in? We're to boast in or relish our position. And there are actually two groups of people mentioned here with opposite positions, but both are to boast in them. Verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich boast in his humiliation. Let the lowly or the poor, those who, those who are in a smaller position, relish in a position that is increased. 
a position that's exalted, and let the rich relish in a position that is humiliated, that is decreased. And James does not say that this is something that happens later in life. It's not let the lowly uh, boast in his exaltation when he wins the lottery, uh, when the harvest is good, when he gets an award, or even when he gets to heaven. This is something he says, let, let you boast as you are humiliated, as you are exalted. This is the state that we are in now. This is a present place. And with these two group, groups talking about how one is to boast in exaltation and one is to boast in humiliation, James does not devote equal attention to both of those groups. Do you notice that? He gives an extra couple of verses to one of them. He talks a little bit more about how the rich is to boast in his humiliation. It's as if the people who are in a higher position need a little bit more convincing, a little bit more needling to face the truth of their position. James uses a bunch of images, comparisons there to drive home just how fleeting we all are. This is true of everyone, but specifically, he says, of those in a rich or a high position, he says that they'll pass away, wither, fall, perish, fade away. And you'll notice he doesn't just say your riches pass away, that the rich man himself will pass away. He says this not only so that they'll face the truth of their lowered position, but that they'll actually come to relish it, to boast in or to take pleasure in that diminished position. Now, why? Why are they to do this? Let me summarize, or at least attempt to summarize, what James is really getting at here. This is the guts of it, I hope. Here's my attempt. He says here that the, to the lowly one, God has given you a place of far greater importance than your poverty has made you think. So relish your exaltation. And then, to the high one, he says, God has given you a place of far less importance than your wealth has made you think. So relish your humiliation. Both of these things are good because they're resetting our understanding of how God has made us to be. If I can say it this way, just for the sake of illustration, a balloon, a balloon that is too deflated is not a balloon. It's just a piece of rubber. And a balloon that is too inflated pops and is not a balloon. It's just pieces of rubber. A balloon can only be a balloon if it has the right amount of air. And this is what the gospel of Jesus is actually doing in us. That if Jesus is really the one who is sufficient for all things, 
that Jesus is really the one worthy of honor and glory, then those who follow him are not really about who's better or on top or wealthier, that it has the effect of making the master and the slave into brothers. So the gospel's effect is, a, is, is leveling. It has a balancing effect on us that Christ is filling us or emptying us as needed so that we will think neither too much or too little of ourselves. So that we'll really honor God as the one who's above all of us, so that we'll really become one in Jesus, so that we'll really live by the Spirit as we're made to be and not just end up as pieces of rubber. In that sense, it makes sense that we would relish this. If we were to look at the first, the first pages of the Bible, when God made the universe, the world and all that's in it, he did so not because he needed anything, or lacked anything, God did this for his own good and his own glory. And part of his own good and his own glory was to make man in his own image as the capstone of creation. And so he set man, Adam and Eve, over everything. They're over the fish and over the birds and over the livestock and over the creeping things and over all the earth. And they're to rule, not just as kings, but as servant kings. That's our design as humans, to be servant kings. So we have, as kings, we have dominion and authority over the earth with crowns on our head. And as servants, we're to work, to keep, to till the garden that we have dirty knees as well. We're made to be these glorious servant kings forever that we would hold a scepter in one hand and a shovel in the other. But if we keep reading in the scripture at all, we know kind of how this plays out, that Adam and Eve didn't hold those two things together. They disobeyed God, and, uh, and they bit the forbidden fruit, and so they broke fellowship with God, and they plunged themselves and all of us after them into a state of sin and rebellion. This is why we need Jesus to rescue and redeem us. But the end of it, or at least the product of this, is that we are not now as God created us to be. Rather than being a people who are servant kings, we are a people who are split into servants and kings. We're splintered groups into the lowly brothers and the rich men, those who hold shovels and those who hold scepters. Now, I know that none of us uh, fits totally into one of those groups or the other. I mean, to my knowledge, none of you are now or have been actual servants or actual kings. Boy, if you are, I want to know. Tell me the stories. Most of us vacillate between one or the other of these, tend toward one or the other over the course of our lives. 
So it's good for us to really think, to reflect on what position we're in now, which one we are closer to, and the ways that the Spirit might work to fill or to empty the balloon as he sees best. What we have here in James, he's not calling for a redistribution of anything or, or some sort of revolution here. I mean, perhaps there's a place for those things. He just doesn't address that here. What he's calling us to do is to rethink our place to give us a change of perspective so that we'll really come to relish God and have satisfaction in the position in which he's put us. Let me end very briefly, just because I know no other place outside of the scripture that's put this quite as well, uh, with some words from, of course, C.S. Lewis. In the Narnia series, uh, Prince Caspian, uh, I, I won't summarize the whole plot line, but there's a guy named Prince Caspian. And toward the, toward the end of this account, uh, the prince here is struggling with his position, how to fulfill his heritage, which is not as honorable as it ought to be and such. And so he has a conversation with Aslan, the lion, uh, who in this story is, is the figure, who's the Christ-like figure. And so uh, Aslan, the lion, says this to Prince Caspian. He says, You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve, And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Be content. Would you pray with me? Lord, We trust that your ways are good and wise because you yourself are good and wise. Help us to boast in a way that is holy, not in a way that's puffed up or prideful, but in a way that's true, that when we are lowly, would we boast in our exaltation, and when we are high, would you help us to boast in our humiliation, that we would be made one and that you would be honored. And we give you praise in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.